Beer and Honey, the German football pod. Welcome to the second edition of Beer and Honey, an edition packed with news and interesting takes, especially from Christoph, especially on Fafel Bochum, perhaps, <laughs> including, though, Bayern in the flow, Dortmund in doubt, Stuttgart in heavy infighting, shock, hope in the red light district, Germany's happiest fans, a new edition of Learning Fußball Deutsch, and of course, Germany's World Cup squad being announced by Hansi Flick. This is Beer and Honey. Hello listeners, a very warm welcome from me, Raphael Honigstein. And Christoph Biermann. But before we get going, first of all, thank you for all those lovely people who are already supporters and listeners of our pod. We just want to remind you that you can help us out by signing up for the Beer and Honey Supporters Club. Just a little bit of a subscription fee goes a long way to ensuring that me and Christoph can keep doing this for the next uh, 25 years or so. And you can find us on steadyhq.com slash en slash beer and honey. Once again, thank you if you're already supporting us and thank you if you are going to support us after listening to this little message. Uh, what we forgot uh, to do in our first, uh, first episode, out of sheer excitement, was to introduce ourselves. Um, so, uh, you just heard the lovely voice of Raphael Honigstein, a.k.a. Honey. <laughs> uh, he was born in Munich, but has lived in London for almost three decades. He has written for many, many major newspapers in Germany and England and wherever in the world. And is a, a senior writer at The Athletic now. He is also a television pundit on BT Sport and Sky in Germany. He has written several books and his biography of Jürgen Klopp has been published in about 227 countries. Uh, by the way, it's great. And if you're a listener who thinks mm, maybe it's a bit too difficult to read in English, it should be available in your language as well. So he's got a thing for Bayern, but not as a glory hunter. Uh, Bayern were his local team. And he has got a thing for beautiful football, too. Thank you, Christoph, for this lovely introduction. If I were to tell people everything that you've done over the last uh, I don't know, 40 years, uh, I don't think we'd have time to do any more podcasting. So I'm going to keep this short if I can. Uh, Christoph Biermann, a.k.a. Bier, lives in Berlin and he's been writing about football for almost four decades about World Cup finals, but also about lower leagues. Uh, and, and about Union, which is sort of in between, I guess. <laughs> he has worked for the Süddeutsche Zeitung and the Spiegel magazine. Today, he's a reporter for football magazine Elf Freunde. He's written more than a dozen award-winning books, all of which are absolutely great. He's also written Football Hackers, which has been published in English and translated by yours truly. He loves, as we know, Fawfel Bochum. And therefore, not surprisingly, all outsiders and underdogs and underprivileged football teams everywhere in the world. <laughs> and the man who is the producer of this podcast is Jörg Groß-Kraumbach. Thank you, Jörg. Uh, let's see how many New York jokes we can get away with here over the time. Let's start, uh, Raphael. Um, Bayern in a flow, uh, you, uh, you said in, in the introduction... 
What impressed you most about Bayern's win against Bremen? The result, the whole performance, or Serge Gnabry, who scored three goals? Yeah, all of the above. I think it was the kind of game on a Tuesday night in Munich, a couple of days before the World Cup nominations, where perhaps you thought, as a Werder Bremen manager, we've got a chance here. Bayern will not really try that hard. No one wants to get injured. Maybe their focus isn't quite right. And for a few minutes, it looked as if that might be the case because they got an equalizer when Bayern were a little bit sloppy, um, being all attracted to the ball near side, I think, as we say in tactical terms, and then leaving the other side completely open. But they very quickly recovered, and it was one of those steamrolling performances that we've seen very often from Bayern against teams that just don't have the same personnel. I think also Werder Bremen are a side that is super reliant on that partnership of Marvin Duksch and Niklas Füllkrug. Füllkrug, who will be, um, spoiler alert, going to the World Cup, but couldn't go to Munich because of a slight back injury wasn't there and it's not quite the same team. Um, even with him on the pitch, there's no guarantee that Bremen would have been able to defend Bayern's onslaught, but they just weren't able to to hold this Bayern side. Bayern, when they're on form, just have too many players too close to the box for most sides to contain. They play so high up the pitch. Julian Nagelsmann has this concept of the second and third wave, meaning when a attack breaks down he wants to have a lot of players in position to pick up the ball it's not even gegenpressing; pressing it's just kind of picking up the ricochets being in a position to to stop uh, any easy through balls and just keep attacking and it's very difficult to defend when Bayern get things right and especially when players like Serge Gnabry is a little bit inconsistent this season but looking a lot better in recent weeks when he's on form than There's not a lot you can do. And in the end, it was a result that I think even surprised in terms of the performance of Joshua Kimmich because maybe he had a feeling that this could be one of those slightly more difficult evenings for Bayern when they they play against themselves as much as the opposition. But it wasn't the case. Yeah, you, you said it. Um, uh, Joshua Kimmich admitted the first half was uh, quite spectacular as if being surprised by how spectacular it was. I mean, the Bayern, so the result was 6-1 in the end, but it was 4-1 at half time, And um, and uh, also, Choupo-Moting missed a penalty, so it could have been one more. And um, is, this, is, is uh, Bayern right now seeing how or learning about themselves how good they can be? I think they knew that. I think they knew that from the first half of the season. They really were on an outstanding level and playing some, for my money, the best football that I have seen from a Bayern team since Pep Guardiola. But the story of last season was that for, for whatever reason, they couldn't sustain this after the winter break. So now we're basically after a little bit of a, a wobble and those slightly hysterical takes on Nagelsmann losing the team, etc. We're back at where we're back where we were last year, uh, with a Bayern team looking very strong. If today, if tomorrow they would be playing PSG, I would make them heavy favourites to get through in the Champions League. But we don't know what kind of form they'll be in in February and March, what kind of key players might might not be available. 
Uh, last time around, they lost Lewandowski, just couldn't compensate for him. Like Maxim Chupomuting had a host of chances, couldn't take enough of them. Will this be a similar story? We don't know, but there is certainly, I think, tremendous quality. And if Nagelsmann, as we talked a little bit about in our first episode, if he manages to man-manage the team a little bit better and finding that human touch, that empathy that is very important for a Bayern team, that in football quality doesn't need a lot of help, really. Of course, he's tactically very astute, but they need more somebody who will make sure that there is a good cohesion, good dressing room spirit, and nobody's too angry, nobody's too frustrated about not playing. And that's something I think he's beginning to learn. Maybe perhaps has taken a bit more time than Bayern would have wanted to pay attention to these issues and maybe still some way to go before he will become more of an expert in that matter. But I think he is smart enough to have listened to some of the criticism and to some of the demands that are coming out from the dressing room because they want, they want ideally, they want somebody who is the son of Pep Guardiola and the mother no, <laughs> they want they want ideally someone who is the son of Pep Guardiola and the daughter, no, maybe also the son, of Hansi Flick. And Julian Nagelsmann is more on the Pep Guardiola uh, family tree of management. And if he can find within himself a more emotional connection, with his players, then I think Bayern will go very far this season. And and maybe um, Jupp Heynckes is the nephew, or <laughs> yeah, Jupp Heynckes certainly is 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 Hansi Flick's spiritual father. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Bayern has now um, six win and one draw from the last seven games. They will go to uh, Schalke on the weekend, be for the last match of the. Um, uh, of this part of the season and it looks like as if they will become uh, yes uh, what how, 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 we, how do we call that learning Fußball Deutsch with beer and honey well today's Fußball Deutsch expression Christoph is Herbstmeister Herbstmeister literal translation autumn champion what it means is the team that is ahead in the table number one when the Bundesliga breaks for its winter break so slightly counterfactual it, it, it should be called uh, winter champion I, I, yeah it should be called winter yeah, champion. but it, it's always been called uh, um, uh, autumn champion uh, for whatever reason yeah, I guess the idea is that during winter you don't play. So you are the champion of the autumn, then winter comes. But it is being slightly complicated by the fact that not always do we have the first half of the season fully finished at the winter break. This year, for example, they will be breaking after 15 games. So for pedants everywhere, does that still constitute Bayern winning the winter championship or are they only really autumn, cha autumn <laughs> championship or are they actually only winter champions after 17 games in January and so, uh, so things I mean the, the World Cup messes with so many things including our German footballing traditions of declaring 
people champions when they're clearly not champions. Um, if you're if you're wondering what it means uh, be, be, being an autumn champion, it helps Meister. It means nothing. I mean, you don't get a cup, you don't get a medal or something. It's not like the Apertura in 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 South America. Um, and um, I I think in about a, a third of the cases, the Herbstmeister uh, is very sad at the end of the season because he had not become the 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 real German champion. So I think in. 18 cases out of almost 60 now, it's uh, the Herbstmeister didn't become German champion. So, um, so how, how, how do we call Bayern? I mean, Bayern will be go in, in, in the leading position before the World Cup. How do we call them? Pre-World Cup champion? I think, um, I think the, the right expression for Bayern would be champions. Okay, um, Let's go to 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 a club. You heard it here yeah. first. <laughs> Let's go to a club who hasn't been champion for quite a while, and but 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 at least uh, the one who was uh, last uh, before uh, Bayern started winning them all in a row. Um, I'll try a very simple thesis here. Uh, Dortmund's problems are not mentality or inconsistency but a lack of goal-scoring threat. They have uh, scored 23 goals now, so that's uh, the, the same amount of goals as Union Berlin, and 20 less than Bayern. That means almost half as uh, much as Bayern. So uh, do you agree that's their main, that it is their main problem, Raphael? I am not sure. I agree that they don't score enough goals. Absolutely. But Bayern score a lot of goals that you don't need necessarily to win. You know, they would have won the game against Werder Bremen 2-1 easily, but they keep scoring because they're having fun and they're so good and then they score six. Uh, for Dortmund to just win a few more games, I think that balance in the team would help. It always feels to me as if this is a side that is more happy playing football, attacking, uh, having the ball, and then they make silly mistakes at the back and shoot them, shoot themselves in the foot. So it might not be a contradiction to say that they should score more goals and have a better mentality and resilience. It's clearly connected, but I agree with you that this is a team that is underperforming at both sides of the pitch. To me, it It looked a bit as if the defeat at Wolfsburg was um, had more to do with um, the la lack of goal-scoring uh, threat than um, defensive mistakes because you also put opponents under pressure by scoring goals. I mean, that's um, uh, so you, you 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 change the psychology of a game if you're one 0 up, and um, and uh, I think. Uh, Borussia is having problems there as well. But I think, uh, okay, that's something we will, I, I think we will discuss for uh, very often in the future, uh, not, not during the World Cup break uh, necessarily, but, but uh, when we return to, to the Bundesliga and maybe already uh, next Monday when we sum up the, uh, the Bundesliga. Well, uh, as you heard, Bayern's win put them in an unassailable position at the top of the table before the break. 
uh, going into before the winter break. Borussia Dortmund's defeat at Wolfsburg leaves them six points adrift off Bayern. Um, level on points with Leipzig, who did win 3-1 against uh, Christian Streich's Freiburg. But it's the other end of the table, Christoph, where there is a bit of hope, uh, a ray of light in the dark confines of the basement. Would, would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, that's true for um, Schalke at the bottom of the table and uh, on 17. It's also true for, for, Dortmund, uh, for Bochum because they both uh, won their matches. So for uh, Schalke ended uh, a series of seven defeats feats with uh, Thomas Rice's first victory at Schalke uh, and his successor in uh, Bochum, Thomas Letch managed uh, three home games um, home wins in a row now, so they were against Frankfurt, uh, Union and now uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach a 2-1 win but still, I mean uh, what, what, what I already said in the first episode that both teams showed um, good mentality last week and uh, Schalke at Bremen and um, Bochum uh, in Dortmund. Um, I, I think, yeah, it's uh, when you look at the table, it's uh, they are not uh, totally hopeless cases, but um, um, I would still insist that both of the team have uh, a lack of quality um, in their squad. Maybe uh, Schalke has uh, the chance to make some corrections over the winter and they probably also have some money because um, now the um, contractual situation of Amin Harit is like that Olympic Marseille has to buy him and uh, Schalke gets five millions for him. And uh, so um, <clears throat> I don't know if, if they will be able to spend all the money uh, on the transfer market, but at least a bit of the money. And I think uh, that could help them. And um, also, I think uh, Bochum will try to make uh, a change uh, something. There are even talks about Maxim Leitch, who was sold to Mainz at the beginning of the season, that he might uh, come back because um, he is in a, a quite difficult si uh, situation at Mainz. So um, there will... Uh, there will uh, things happen in uh, with both clubs, and um, yeah, I think they they have the weakest squads, but uh, maybe they have the chance to um, uh, um, increase the quality over winter. Mm. And what do you think of Hertha? I mean, it would it would be fitting in a way if they were to get relegated after the year that they're having with their main investor running out of. Money running out of ideas, perhaps trying to sell his shares in the last Windhorst. The money's gone, they can't reinvest. And Sandro Schwarz is a, is a great guy, a great talker, lovely, lovely human being. But does he have the quality to keep Hertha up? They don't look very good at the moment. Yeah, They're only 16, yeah, and, one point clear. And, and, and when, when you look around, um, Bochum. yeah. Um, and especially after their defeat, they, they lost 2-1 uh, in Stuttgart. A late goal, um, a very late goal by Mavropanos. Uh, uh, was the 2-1 for Stuttgart on the 1-2 against them. I think that increased the frustration. So overall, the 
my impression is that the atmosphere around the club with the um, with the changing um, of the president with Kai Bernstein, uh, the the guy with the ultra background now being in charge, that helped to um, uh, better the atmosphere um, around Hertha. But now, I think these doubts that uh, what, what you said about um, maybe the coach, but also the quality of the squad and, and so on, it's, it's creeping in now. And um, I think the the um, the match on on the weekend against Cologne will be very 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 important uh, with what what kind of atmosphere um, they go into this uh, long break. Yeah, Stuttgart won as you said against Hertha in the last minute. Another one of those very exciting late wins that they seem to specialize in. Well, they don't win that often, but when they do. It is quite spectacular. But off the pitch, Christoph, there is a lot going on. And I fear that there won't be many winners at all at the club. Can you enlighten us about the latest infighting? Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's really, um, I think for me, it's a, it's a typical case of um, uh, too much football internal football politics uh, within a club. So um, what we have now is uh, we have a stand-in coach in um, Michael Win uh, Wimmer, who, um, uh, he, who was the assistant of uh, Pellegrino Materazzo and uh, after he was released from his job, took over. He did it uh, quite successfully, winning three out of uh, five games. And now everybody is thinking... Can he be uh, the new new coach for, for till the end of the season or wherever? Um, they there are uh, other candidates and um, and uh, uh, Sven Mislintat, who is the sports director of the club, he is supporting Wimmer, um, but he is saying, um, but this is not a decision I can make alone. That should be decided by those who have also a contract between uh, beyond June 30th, 2023. Uh, so, and he is talking about himself because his contract is, is expiring then. And what we have here is a kind of power struggle between the new CEO Alexander Werle and Sven Mislintat. Sven Mislintat is very popular among um, Stuttgart supporters for good reason, I think, because he uh, brought down the cost of the, the squad over the... I mean, he brought them back to the Bundesliga. He brought down the cost. Uh, it's a very uh, young and exciting team. He also made a lot of money in the transfer market, uh, buying cheap, uh, selling uh, for, for a lot of money and, and so on. Um, but um, obviously he seemed to be, um, for Alexander Valley, he seemed to be too powerful. And so... Werle brought in in Sami Kedira and Philip Lahm as two two advisors um, who have been players in the past, and uh, in Christian Gentner, also a, a, a player who played a lot, many years, uh, someone who will be from uh, January on the director of professional football at Stuttgart. And if you ask me what what kind of role that is exactly. Uh, I couldn't tell you, and I think probably nobody 
at uh, uh, Stuttgart Court. And um, uh, so, so I don't know how you would call it, but I think it's um, the road, to, uh, the, the classic road to disaster. <laughs> yeah, the, certainly the road to Bundesliga 2, if they're, uh, they're not careful, you wouldn't put it, wouldn't put it past this team to get, to get relegated. Um, it's a shame because Stuttgart, as a club, I, ha I always had a soft spot for them. And I think they could be a real powerhouse considering all the money that is available in the city. It's a very wealthy area, lots of German industry around there. But as a club, they've been a byword for infighting and intrigue and people really not getting on with each other for many years now. And it looks as if Sven might be the latest uh, victim of that tendency to fight with each other rather than other teams on the pitch. Christoph, you wanted to talk about the happiest fans in the league, um, which is intriguing to me because I often feel that fans are not happy at all, whatever happens, <laughs> uh, in one way or another. But you think that you might have found uh, an exception. To yeah, uh, even two exceptions, because there are two clubs in the Bundesliga uh, where everybody is acknowledging that they had their best year ever. Um, I was at the Alte Försterei yesterday and uh, they had only a 2-2 draw against Ausburgs. But afterwards, there was a huge celebration. Nobody leaving the stadium, putting up a huge banner. Uh, 2022, a total dream. Thanks for everything. And uh, a lot of smaller banner reminding of the... Uh, great achievements of the team uh, in this very year. So, and and it, this took on I, I, 15 minutes or so. Uh, the player standing in front of the home end, and so it it was really moving. And and I think um, the Eintracht Frankfurt supporters uh, they have the same view of 2022 um, as the best year ever. Because um, I, I think arguably it it um, it was um, because um, uh, because I think it, it it just was. I mean, they won the Europa League. Um, they qualified for the Champions League. Now they will play next year against Napoli in the uh, round of last sixteen and so on. So this is um, um, it's fantastic. And yes, there are. Happy football fans, um, without any doubt. But now for something completely different. White smoke, not at the Vatican, but at the German FA. Raphael, um, what is your surprise nomination for Hansi Flick's World Cup squad for Germany? Which name surprised you most? I think Bella Amel Kotschap uh, surprised me most. He's been playing really well for Southampton, but we haven't seen much of him for Germany. And in Mats Hummels, there was somebody who played really well in recent recent months, who of course has a great history and tradition in this in this team. And I thought also maybe Robin Koch might come might come in as a centre-back, but I think it seems to me as if Bella Kotschap is one of those players that Flick sim simply has fallen in love with and decided that he likes him. Why, why are you pointing at yourself? Christoph? Yeah, but because, because uh, um, 
Because he's from Farfield. Yes, Bochum, yes, or? yes. And I have seen very many, uh, very many games of Armel Belakotchap um, at Bochum. I think almost every every game. And he was the interesting case of a player where I was always wondering if he will end up in the uh, Champions League final or in, somewhere in the Regionalliga West because uh, there was uh, such an enormous gap between his best and his worst uh, performance. And uh, uh, over the time, he has uh, decided to <laughs> to take the, the, the path towards uh, his best performance. And... Um, And he is. I mean, he is. Uh, he is fast. He is. Uh, he is such a massive. Uh, um, uh, how 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 do you say it? Unit. Unit. Yes. Um, he is impressive, and uh, so I understand Hansi Flick. Yeah. No, it's definitely understandable. Um, yeah. Other surprises. I mean, Robin Gosens is a little bit unlucky. Robin Gosens is uh, uh, the columnist for El Freunde, the magazine uh, I'm, I'm working for. And so I'm in a... In a It's the jinx, the jinx, the Freunde <laughs> jinx. Was he on the cover? <laughs> no, 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 not yet. <laughs> and um, so uh, I know how depressed he is today. Yeah. Or... I think he got the message already yesterday or, or, or several days be, before that because um, he put so much en energy. I mean, he went to, to Inter, but then he had this um, injury and, and, and so on. And, and it, uh, um, he, um, he couldn't really establish himself as a first-team player at Inter. So, yeah, um, sad for, for him. Yeah, I'm also sad for him because he's such a lovely man. But I think he's also a victim of, of Flick's tactical ideas because unlike Löw in his jazz odyssey phase at the end of his managerial reign, Flick has a very clear idea of a back four. And Robin Gosens is much happier as a wingback. And I think that is one of the reasons why he hasn't made it. Also, Flick seems to be especially keen on defenders who can play in a variety of positions you can play as center backs or as as fullbacks that's why Tilo Kera is there because Germany has not that many good decent fullbacks and ultimately he felt that Gorsens was perhaps too limited as a left back which is a shame for him um, you um, demanded Yusufa Mukoko, and you got him. <laughs> Congrats. Yeah. And um, Thank you. also Mario Götze. Are you a bit surprised that he really went for him? Um, a little bit, but I think in my head, and I don't know if it was the same for him, it was between Götze and Wirtz. And I think the moment he decided that Wirtz couldn't really be taking, having not played a single minute, This season, I think it would have been too strange to take somebody and to basically be here rehab for him at the World Cup. Then Goetze suddenly came into play and you think, okay, there is there is this this extra space. And Goetze has been playing really well in recent weeks. Um, he surprised me in the sense that he's been so consistent and has been better than I than I thought would, he would be. But I'm super happy. Because I think he deserved that that nice phase after the difficult career that he's had in many ways. So great great news for him. But my feeling also is that we're talking about 
the 24th or 25th player in the squad and not somebody who's necessarily going to get that much game time. But you never know. Things can change quickly, as as, as you all know, in, in the World Cup. It's probably the one set of games where every game is so important and influences the next one far more than in any league or even uh, knockout uh, competition at club level. So maybe Mario Götze will, will get a chance and it'd be great. It'd be great in a way to see it quite romantic, I think. Also, is it romantic? Is it romantic that he uh, brought in uh, Niklas Fulkuk? In a way, yes, I think. A guy who played second division football last season and um, and has never played has, for Germany before. Has never played for Germany before. And how, how often do you do you see him on, on the pitch, actually? Is he the guy who comes in when 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 he's desperately needed in the last 10 minutes or it, could he be the center forward i'd like him to be the center forward for the reasons that you mentioned i just don't know how quickly he can be integrated into the team i think the big problem for him would be that that one week of preparation doesn't give you enough time to really develop new ideas and i think it is a new departure to have a center forward there rather than a force nine or somebody like uh, Kai Havertz or Serge Gnabry or Thomas Müller who can play through the middle. But I think it would make a lot of sense for uh, playing a team like Japan who will be very deep, who you can physically perhaps, as far as aerial strength is concerned, uh, maybe dominate a little bit if you go slightly more direct. And to have somebody available for that would, would make a lot of sense. Um, I th still get the sense that Flick has not necessarily decided that Fulkrug is going to lead the line for Germany. I think that would be a huge surprise to go from having never played for Germany to being the starter at the World Cup in the number nine position. I think he will look very carefully in training, how he fits in, what he offers. And then I think we're more likely to see him maybe as a second-half sub against uh, against Japan, probably less so against Spain. And then who knows? If he scores a couple of goals, then he will stay in. And if not, then he will have a nice experience. Last question before we leave. Um, when the squad was presented, it, 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 oh, not only then, but, but in recent weeks, whenever the German national team talked to the public, they were talking about They want they they are going to Qatar because they want to win the World Cup. How do you see that chance? That, so that's what 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 I wanted to know from you. I think it's hard for for anyone representing Germany not to talk about winning the World Cup. I think people don't expect them to say, you know, at quarter final, that's probably really going to be decent success for us. But I think there is a difference between the public public's expectation and what the players want to do and hope to do. And I think that gap is is actually a healthy one for Flick because maybe you disagree, but my sense is that he's not under pressure to win this World Cup. Um, he's also not under pressure, I think, to make it to the final. Semi-final would be decent. I think if they get knocked out by Brazil in the quarters, which can definitely happen if you look at how the, the tournament is structured, Germany win their group, Brazil win their group, then they win their last 16 games. Then they meet each other in the quarterfinal of Germany, get knocked out 2-1 after a really good performance. I don't think anyone's going to go home and say this was a disaster. Uh, unlike to 2014, of course, where only winning was acceptable. So 
I think there is enough space between realistic expectations and the team's own ambitions to have a decent World Cup without it having to be all or nothing. I think it's much. There's going to be much more pressure on the Euros in two years' time because they're in Germany. Because Flick would have had more time to build his team, also proper preparation. I think Germany. This is going to be an interesting thing for Germany. They've always relied on that preparation time with the team to build that cohesion and that team spirit and almost like a club effect that other nations, even though they have perhaps better players, haven't necessarily been able to do. And this year, because there's no preparation, I think Germany might fail to create the same kind of coherence in a, in a tactical, but also in, a, in an emotional sense um, when it comes to connecting with each other. And that might work against them um, this time. Uh, they, they tried to use this week in Oman, where they also have a friendly before the World Cup, as a kind of substitute to that. Or some, maybe something that's comparable to what uh, Bayern had before they, um, they were winning the Champions League in, in Portugal with this uh, mini-tournament uh, uh, situation. And, uh, but we will see. Thanks, listeners, um, for listening to today's uh, podcast. We'll be back on Monday. Yes, we will be back on Monday with our latest edition before I jet off to Qatar and Christopher watch proceedings from the safety of his Berlin sofa. Uh, I hope you'll join us on that journey, but please also don't forget that we need your support. Please go to steadyhq.com slash en slash beer and honey to help us out, become supporters of this fine little independent podcast of ours. And we'll be back with much more beer and honey content very soon. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye. Beer and Honey, the German football podcast.